and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI, Oxford University's Institute for the Study of America and its place in the world. I'm Adam Smith. One of the most striking trends in historical scholarship in this era of partisan polarisation and economic insecurity has been a return to something like a grand narrative of American history as a battle between elites and masses. A hundred years ago, the so-called progressive school of historians, people like Charles and Mary Beard, argued that the United States had been characterised by a continual struggle between opposing economic interests. In this view, the Civil War was a second American revolution. As the Beards put it, it was a social cataclysm in which the capitalists, labourers and farmers of the North and West drove from power in the national government the planting aristocracy of the South. The 21st century has seen a resurgence of something like this kind of sensibility, the perception that history has been driven by competing economic interests. Though the big difference, I think, is that today's scholarship is generally much less materialist, that is to say, it doesn't assume that economic interests are in themselves the drivers of history, but focuses instead on ideas and assumptions, how the way that people see the world can reinforce or occasionally undermine power relations. These are some of the themes in the work of the prolific scholar and public commentator Heather Cox Richardson. Among other things, Heather has written about how the Republican Party pushed its developmental economic agenda during the Civil War, and about how the American West with its myth of hardy masculine individualism, the cowboy idea, reinforced economic, gender and racial hierarchies. Heather's latest book, How the South Won the Civil War, argues that while the Confederacy obviously lost the Civil War on the battlefield and secession and slavery perished too, the vision of society that the Confederacy was fighting for lived on. For Heather, what was so distinctive about the pro-slavery Southern leaders was that they were so overt about their vision of a society in which the freedom of some depended on the unfreedom of many. The most notorious illustration of this worldview was a speech given in the United States Senate in 1858, just three years before the Civil War broke out, by Senator James Henry Hammond of South Carolina. In all social systems, there must be a class to do the menial duties, to perform the drudgery of life. That is a class requiring but a low order of intellect and but little skill. Its requisites are vigor, docility, fidelity. Such a class you must have, or you would not have that other class which leads progress, civilization, and refinement. It constitutes the very mud sill of society and of political government. And you might as well attempt to build a house in the air is to build either the one or the other, except on this mud cell. James Henry Hammond was making an argument to defend human enslavement. 
But according to Heather Cox Richardson, the assumptions underpinning what he was saying have never gone away. When I spoke to Heather, I began by asking about the title of her book. In what sense did the South win the Civil War? Well, the book argues that the ideology of the South, which was an idea that uh, the world works best when a few wealthy white men run it, actually did survive the war and got regrouped in the American West and gradually after World War II came to take over the American political scene altogether. And that we are, in fact, at this very moment, essentially reliving the ideological fight of the Civil War of the 1860s. Let's just hone in on what that ideology was, Fed. What was the South? fighting for that leads you to say that in the end they won? The South is pretty clear. Southern leaders are pretty clear that what they are fighting for is a world in which a few well-connected, wealthy, educated men control society. And they articulate that in a number of places. Most famously is the piece that I keep pointing to is the Senate in 1858, when South Carolina Senator James Henry Hammond stands up and he says, you know, you people in the North have it all wrong, that you think that somehow every person should be created, or every man, I'm sorry, should be created equal. In fact, the vast majority of people in the world are sort of lazy and dull and they're loyal, but basically they just want to dance and eat. And which, by the way, is a really interesting precursor to language that you heard during the Nixon administration quite famously. Um, But they're basically lazy and they just need to be taken care of. And you don't, these people are going to work and they're going to produce a lot of uh, value. But if you let them have control over what they produce, they're simply going to fritter it away. What you really want to do is, is consolidate that um, that that power, that economic power that they produce into a very few people, rather as if you look at the the at a structure of a house. So in a in a in a mansion, you would have the mud sills, which are the pieces of wood driven into the mud, literally to support the higher edifice. And he makes that explicit comparison in his uh, Senate speech of 1858 in which he says most people are mudsills and the rest of us are the ones who sort of consolidate that power and move the country forward. And that idea of what is essentially an oligarchy, uh, moving society forward by directing the labor and the product of the the minions, if you will, was really clear, of course, in Hammond's speech, but then you have the wonderful, uh, to a historian, uh, cornerstone speech of Alexander Stevens, who becomes the vice president of the Confederacy. He was a, a senator from Georgia, in which the the cornerstone speech that we all know quite explicitly says Thomas Jefferson had it wrong, that this was an error that the founders made, that all men were created equal. And the new Confederacy was going to get rid of that fallacy and have this new dynamic society based on human enslavement. And that ideology, the idea that a few people should direct the labor of everybody else because everybody else is somehow uh, mentally and mentally inferior, not physically. They're the ones doing the hard labor of society is one that I think you could see pretty clearly echoed in the present in the way that the current leaders of the Republican Party talk about direction of society. They want a few people to lead. So when you talk about the South winning the Civil War, then what what you're doing there uh, is you're shifting the focus away from the South's uh, defense of human enslavement in a a legal sense, which, of course, was overtly what they were fighting for. They made that very clear, Southern states, in their ordinances of 
secession, the documents that explained why they were leaving the Union in 1860-61, But what you're saying is that the assumptions that underpinned the justification for a race-based system of enslavement could also be used to defend an economic and social system in general in which there was an elite at the top for whom the economy works very well, thank you very much, and then a mass at the bottom whose labor could be exploited in one way or another. Yes, although I would add to what you have said that it's not only a race-based system, and it's certainly not only elite white men and African-American men or African-American people as the South, um, as, as obtained in the in the uh, U.S. South before the Civil War. That ideology, that idea that the world works best if it's run by a few white men also fit very naturally over the, the different ethnicities in the West, but it right. also was highly informed by a sexism, by the idea that women don't have any kind of a role to play in the, uh, in the, the directing of society. And that ideology, I think, is behind not only the, the Southern Confederacy, but also a great deal of American history in general. I know this isn't the, the main focus of this conversation, but it would explain why so many northerners in the 1850s and and during the civil war were motivated to fight against what they called the slave power the slaveholders who they saw as running the south and running the federal government even if they were themselves white supremacists and had not previously been mobilized against slavery they certainly weren't abolitionists but there are millions of these people who were nevertheless prepared to get fight against the slave power because they thought that this movement was directly threatening their own interests as white men. Oh, I think that's exactly right, and have written about that in previous books. Uh, what the what white Northerners who are, as you say, explicitly racist themselves, are complaining about when they look at the slave power, which is a term that they that they develop um, that actually comes out of abolitionism, but they grab hold of it, is their concern not about slavery in the South. They've lived with that quite happily for for decades. What they're concerned about is that the slave power will move into the new Western territories and monopolize the resources there by moving in their what they consider cheaper enslaved workers. And that will keep poor white guys from from moving in and moving up. And when that happens, they too will become part of this mudsill class, if you will. And James Henry Hammond in his Senate speech actually deals with that. And he says to the Northerners uh, against whom he is speaking in, in the Senate that day, he says, you know, you guys have the same problem, but you have, you know, you have mudsills too. And this is just the way the world works. This is, you know, he's sort of posing as a political scientist. He says, you know, this is the way the world works, but you people make the mistake of letting them vote. And if you let them vote, it's only a question of time until they're going to use their votes to claw back some of the the wealth that they're producing. And then where will you be? Then your cities will go to ruin. And, you know, he predicts all kinds of terrible downfalls. But um, he is quite explicitly saying that this system that he is arguing for is the one that should direct society. And of course, that's what Abraham Lincoln the following year stands up and says, hey, wait a minute, that's actually not the way this country is supposed to work. But that ideology, and then he, he articulates his own ideology for the, the, the country, which becomes the side that wins during the war and theoretically replaces that all idea with the idea of all men being created equal quite dramatically with the emancipation of slaves and the inclusion of African-American men in the body politic. But, um, but that is a really explicit response to this concept that 
that the Southerners are articulating, that a few white men really do belong on top. We should bring in here this this really critical idea, which, which is in a way the, the kind of foundation of your book, which is the idea of America is founded on a paradox of, on the one hand, the ringing claim that all men are created equal in Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. On the other hand, the deep-seated and legally and culturally embedded reality of inequality. And the, the critical idea that you push in this book, other scholars, of course, have, have, have made the, the point as, as well, is that those two things, far from just existing in tension, in a way, the easy thing to say is, okay, there's an obvious tension here. There's an obvious paradox. You know, the old Dr. Johnson phrase about why is it that we hear the loudest yelps for freedom from the drivers of, of, of Negroes, I think he said. The answer to that is we hear the loudest yelps for freedom precisely because they're the drivers of Negroes. So it's not a tension. The one explains the other. The equality for white men is predicated on inequality and hierarchy. Do you want to explain how that that idea kind of underpins what you're you're arguing in this book? Yes, I'd be happy to, but I have to say I'm laughing here because you put it so much more eloquently than I did. In fact, the line in my introduction until the very end was, it's not a bug, it's a feature. <laughs> and, and I decided I wasn't allowed to put that in a book. Um, uh, yes, but remember, of course, that the that I am expanding on an idea that Edmund Morgan pioneered in American slavery, American freedom in the 1970s. Right. And he was yeah. looking at specifically at the um, the Chesapeake region and how the you got the rise of human enslavement in a way of being a mirror of what colonists had come with, with the idea that there was an underclass of poor people in his uh, explanation coming from England that had been seen as a different class. You know, they were locked in that position for life. They were, they were marked in certain ways by their clothing and sometimes by branding. You know, they were all, you know, he made this argument and said that by erasing those people from the body politic, and saying, you know, we don't have to worry about these uneducated, um, lazy, whatever people. We can envision a world in which everybody else is equal. So I find that argument very compelling. I mean, there's a, there are problems with that book, of course, but I find he asked the right question and I find it very compelling. So what I did was simply to take um, the step that actually, Adam, you probably have forgotten, but that you pointed out to me many, many, many years. Well, I shouldn't say that because we're young still, but we were once having a discussion in Harvard. Harvard Square. We were at Obama Penn in Harvard Square. And um, and you're looking at me like you have no memory of this, but I do. Because you said to me about, uh, I think it was my second book, you said, um, a white man could never have written this book. Because what I did is I looked at it from a perspective outside. And uh, the, the, what at the time was the, the, the really dominant theory of uh, sort of liberal historical writing, and I mean liberal in the 19th century liberal, and said, wait a minute, where are the women in this picture? You know, the, certainly they're African-American men and white, white men, but like, where's everybody else? Because there's also women here and Mexicans here and indigenous people here. And where are they? And so all I did was I took Edmund Morgan's idea and said, it's not just about white men and black men, it also, that dominating system actually obviously starts with indigenous people because they're the first people who get enslaved when the colonists come. And then uh, it certainly includes women as well, who are not even on the scale of humanity for so many colonists. And and that expansion of, of that 
uh, idea that of inequality for anybody who was not explicitly a white man. And of course, there's some exceptions to that. Of course, you can be initiated into that small club under certain circumstances throughout American history. But that expansion, I think, was in part enabled by the fact that I do study the 20th century as well. And when you look at the language, for example, of um, uh, Pat Buchanan, and who was the speechwriter for both um, Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon, you know, during the Nixon administration, they are quite explicitly uh, declaring that the world should be... be divided in two and that there's us and them and them is people of color and women who want to have a, a, a role in American society outside the home. And you, you look at that really explicit construction of an us and a them, which, um, as we know now, since the rise of totalitarian figures in the mid 20th century is crucial to going ahead and cementing a, a, a voting population. I think it reads really quite naturally and, uh, honestly, sort of obviously back into uh, the early 19th century and really even back into the construction of the American nation. So at various points in the book and the consequences of this argument is that what we have to explain is why it is that non-elite white people and, and white men, we're mainly talking about, vote for the party of oligarch. It's a great question, isn't it? How does a democracy turn into an oligarchy? So the answer to that question, if I'm if I'm hearing you 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 correctly, reading your 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 book correctly, is the the concept of a kind of of a culture war, which you read right back into the nineteenth century. That these people are on some level, you're arguing, voting against their economic self interest, but in favour of their psychic or political best interest by aligning themselves with the powerful group. Yes, and I would add something to that. I wanted the book really to capture the incredible positivity of um, of this image that in America that anybody can work their way up. That idea of freedom, the idea of possibility. And when there's a line, my favorite line in the book says something like, "You know, they weren't either racists or small d Democrats. They were both at the same time." And that I think is the extraordinary power of this argument that oligarchs march out is that it is not simply racism. It is not simply you're better than them. It is also it also has the seeds of that extraordinary excitement. Anybody can make it. This is great. This is who right. we are. And, and I that's think why it's so powerful. And I think it's 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 important to kind of to build on that because there is a danger here, isn't there, in as it were writing off large swathes of the American public today uh, and throughout history. I mean perhaps 43% of the voting population as of this moment as being dupes they don't think they're dupes i guess nobody ever thinks they're a dupe but um there's got to be something powerful and positive that they think they're defending so there are they evidently believed whether we're talking about people who voted for goldwater in 1964 or whether we're talking about people who voted for the democrats in the 1850s they evidently believed that they were defending something really important about their community about family values about their uh, religious faith from something that was profoundly threatening and that was other that was un-american in some way well, I think the comparison is not actually Goldwater and James Buchanan, who was elected in um, 
1856, which is the obvious place to go, but rather somebody like Andrew Jackson. Because if you look at the language, for example, that Andrew Jackson uses or that Barry Goldwater uses, in both cases, they are promising a return in their minds to a world in which individuals really do have control over their own destiny. And that is, you know, in both cases, they build up their opposition in ways that are really unfair, but that's kind of politics, if you will. And you can really see somebody getting behind Andrew Jackson and getting behind perhaps Barry Goldwater with the language of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give your control, the control of your life back to you. And that's what America is all about. Now, in both cases, especially with Jackson, because he does become president, we recognize that that's not at all how it played out. Jackson promptly um, threw the Indians off their land and took it all for himself and his buddies. But, um, but there's another key piece, I think, that perhaps does not get enough attention in this book because I was focusing on ideology. And what happens is increasingly as more and more regular, ordinary voters, if you will, recognize that the oligarchs are moving in a direction that is not helping them, the people who are gaining power under this new regime begin to toss voters off the, off the rolls and begin then, once they get enough power, to actually manipulate the system to the point that it's not possible, for example, right now for a Democrat to win office in Wisconsin, no matter how many votes they get, because it's been so badly gerrymandered. And the same, of course, was true in the 1850s. When you get to the election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln's delegates don't even appear on the ballots of most of the Southern states. Well, it's really hard to win an election when your voters literally can't vote for you. Mm. And so it's not uh, the 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 blame if you will for the rise of an oligarchy i think rests a lot less on the ordinary voters that uh, than some people might see when they look at where we are right now as it does i think first of all in this ideology but second that once uh once these anti-democratic forces come into power they deliberately destroy uh the system that might give voice to other people and you know we're in a wonderful moment in as for a historian in that in america right now i believe this is the first election in american history right now in 2020 where nobody is arguing that the republican candidate might actually win the popular vote i mean that's that's out the window and this is theoretically a democracy everybody is arguing about whether or not he can cheat the system in such a way that he's going to win even though nobody is arguing that he actually could win a majority of the votes and that says right there it's not about majority rule any longer it is simply about manipulating the system and that's precisely right. what you saw in 1860 right i mean we sh i mean ronald reagan of course did nevertheless win convincingly in re-election in 1984 albeit with a with a much whiter electorate than we than we have in 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 2020 and and andrew jackson with an entirely white and entirely male electorate but actually not not a hundred percent white because there were there were some african americans could vote in some new england states but pretty much white and male electorate of course did win um two elections and i i'm just i mean i'm guessing that the that the people who supported Jackson in 1828 and 1832 did think they were getting what they voted for, right? I mean, they voted to to uh, take control of Native American lands in the South, and they got that. They voted to destroy an elitist institution, the Bank of the United States, which was a private monopoly. They got their populist hero, and I guess the people who voted for Reagan, including all those Reagan Democrats, they got a popular 
champion as well, who they thought stood up for them, at least rhetorically. And I'm guessing that Trump supporters today think that. Well, but isn't that the question, though? Because yes, in fact, let's start with the 1830s. They did get those things. And the destruction of the Second Bank of the United States threw America into one of the worst recessions it, it has ever had, certainly the worst it had had at the time. And it the the backlash against Jackson was so extraordinary that we get the invention of the Democratic Review in an attempt to create a new literature to try and convince people to stay behind small d democracy. And similarly, they do get uh, the Indian lands. But as I say, the lands almost exclusively go to very wealthy men. So it kind of begs the question to me if if a Jackson voter were looking at where the country was in the 1850s, would they continue to want to go down a road where where wealth and power is consolidating in that small group? And I think, first of all, I think it's understudied. But second of all, I think that, you know, Carrie Lee Merritt's new masterless men suggests that, no, they weren't happy about that at all. And Mm -hmm. if they had had the ability to control politics, they would have... um, have uh, have perhaps not gone that direction. And similarly, you know, um, David Brown's book on um, on Hilton, on Hinton Rowan helpers uh, for uh, 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 the impending crisis and how to meet it. You know, that book, the, which basically said to poor whites in the South, you know, you guys are getting screwed over. You know, they had to suppress the uh, publication of that. And similarly, in the present, you know, I think I I do think that there is a real difference between today's Trump voters and even 2016 Trump voters. But but it, a more interesting parallel, I think, is to look at Reagan voters and to wonder if Reagan voters in two in 1984, for example, had any concept of where the country was going to go and would they support where we are now? And I think the answer almost across the board is simply no. I know a lot of those people who are now Biden voters. And that actually is to me very interesting because one of the things I was trying to talk about in the book was how ideological positions, especially political ideological positions, gradually start to, I always thought of it as around a pole, gradually start to spin society around them. You start to get media, you start to get religion, you start to get all these things supporting the idea that a few wealthy men should rule. And of course, I also talk about the moment after World War II when the opposite was true. You had after uh, FDR and Truman and Eisenhower, the idea that embraced Lincoln's idea that the government really should be promoting equality of opportunity across the bottom, because that's where true innovation came from. And similarly, at the time, that uh, that ideology became absolutely dominant in in America through cartoons, Superman, and movies, and music, and and the the degree to which culture begins to revolve around these political ideologies, and that itself begins to to change the way people think, to me, is one of the more interesting pieces of uh, of American politics. And of course, ultimately, the idea behind this book, the theory behind this book, because there was one, um, was that what really changes American politics is um, is ideas and the the power of ideas to shape culture. And this is, again, one of the reasons that I am now politically involved the way I am, trying desperately to change ideas. I, I want to kind of return to the confederacy um you you and the president (laughs) well i I, i'm just interested in your views heather on whether we are at a really interesting tipping point we've had on the one hand the extraordinary phenomenon of a president who openly uh embraces confederate imagery 
And then what we've had as a consequence of that is a, is a backlash or there's a kind of iterative relationship between those two things. And so we've got to the point now where there is a proposal to, I don't know where it's got to, but to, to remove the names of Confederate generals from U.S. military bases. I mean, how extraordinary that there still are U.S. military bases or that there ever were U.S. military bases named after Confederate generals. But we have the president opposing that but the U.S. Army supporting it and, you know, even even some moderate Republicans, if that's not a complete oxymoron nowadays, um, taking a more um, a more nuanced line. We have Confederate monuments coming down across the country in extraordinary uh, numbers. Uh, and that reaction, you know, may well be uh, gather force, especially if Trump is forced to leave office in some way or another, and the Confederacy may finally have lost, at least in that cultural sense, setting apart the question of of oligarchy. What do you think? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And and you've pointed to two things that I think are really important. The first is the military move to get rid of those Confederate, uh, the names on, on the Confederate, ba- the Confederate names on army bases. And they're quite explicit about the reason for that, or as, as explicit as any military leader can be. And, and they point out that 40% of the U.S. military forces are people of color. Right. So if you're going to go ahead and have any kind of cohesion across your units, you cannot celebrate white supremacy. And that, I think, also points to the moment that uh, that I think actually the Trump that Trump represents and that maybe America is demonstrating for the world in a really a profound and quite frightening way. And that is that the world has moved on. It is no longer a world that is dominated by white men. And we're seeing a reactionary impulse against that. But it's no accident if you remember that the woman who took down the flag over the South, that flew in front of the South Carolina State House, the Confederate flag, I remember that moment so vividly. Like there's people for days standing around going, hey, someone should take down that flag. Look, someone should take down that flag. Is anybody going to take down the flag? We'd like to take down that flag. And finally, Bree Newsom's like, screw this. And she just climbs it and takes it down. She's an African-American woman. And, um, And there is this sense, I think, here anyway, that the world is moving on and it's moving on from that old Cold War, if you will, image where a few hardy white Americans should dominate everybody else. And that, I think, is profoundly frightening for people who feel that it leaves no room for them in the world. It's also a very exciting time for everybody else. And I think one of the reasons that um, that that ultimately Trumpism is going to lose is this is a, a movement that um, that also speaks to to the world economy and to everything else. You know, it's really noticeable, I think, that so many now leaders in in American corporations are still white male. And I know that's a real problem for them because you can't negotiate in other countries when you came come in with a kind of uh, with a leadership team that all looks exactly like, you know, carbon copies of each other. The world is changing. And um, and we, I think, are perhaps playing out the the extraordinary tensions of what that change looks like. But at the end of the day, and and believe me, we're in the middle of it right now, and it's not pretty. But at the end of the day, I just don't see this old white reactionary um, world surviving, at least in America. I worry about the rise of world oligarchy a lot, but but are we going to put up with it? I think the answer is no. I mean, you could you could imagine the toppling of the old white guys, as it were, and their supremacy culturally and socially. And as you say, there's loads of evidence that that is happening and that feels like an inexorable process. But at the same time, the economic, uh, the distribution of wealth 
which of course is is more uh, skewed now in favour of a microscopically small percentage at the top than it has been for more than a century in the United States and in many other countries around the world. You can easily imagine that system um, being far, far harder to dismantle or reorientate than the kind of cultural and social changes that you're talking about. And I mean, I guess you're saying that the one will lead to the other, that the two are related and that material change can follow on from a shift in ideas. That's always how I think, that you change ideas and you will change the the world. And think about America in the 1920s. As, as people, when people say to me, you know, the world, you know, it's all over, it's we're done. I'm, I'm always like, you know, you would have said the same thing in America in 1928. The Republicans had sewn up American politics forever. And by 1932, there's a landslide for J, for um, for FDR and an entirely new kind of American government. And, you know, politics can turn on a dime. I do want to point out something that it seems astonishing to me few so few people are pointing to, and that is that what does the taking down of statues always herald? It always heralds regime change. And the fact that that these are coming down and people are somehow not saying, oh boy, this is a really big cultural moment. When you pull down statues, that's really a major, major sign of societal change. And um, and somehow because it's happening in America, I think people are not like, oh wow, they're taking down the statues. But I do think that culturally and psychologically, that's a really big moment. And one of the reasons that there is such pressure against it. But it's a big cultural moment that I don't think we should overlook because it does signal so much. We could talk about so many things, Heather. I, I want to just, I can't resist. I've just got one last question to ask you. You'll think this is a kind of cheeky one, really. But reading your book, I thought a couple of times you know what, uh, maybe if Northerners in 1861 had just let secession happen, had just let secession happen, the world would have been a better place, right? I mean, you could have had uh, an, an independent South, which would have been a horrific, abusive place, but it would have been sealed off, would have been cut off from the rest of the Western world increasingly with the anti-slavery movement solidified in the North, uh, uh, rescue missions being conducted all the time across the Ohio River to help uh, self-emancipating enslaved people. You'd have had the, the, the British Navy patrolling the, the Caribbean, trying to stop any attempt to reassert the slave trade. Um, and, well, what would have happened to the West? You'd have had a West then colonized and developed by the United States, which would have been more New England dominated than the United States actually was. Um, and the whole trajectory of, of world history ever since would have been different and, and possibly better. What do you think? I, I have a hard time arguing with that, to be honest. I mean, if you if you if there's any number of turning points, of course, if uh, Abraham Lincoln had not been assassinated, one of our the key issues was that Andrew Johnson tried to resurrect the South. If, in fact, Lincoln had stayed in power and said, no, you guys can't do this, the sorts of things you're doing, things would have looked very different as well. Um, unfortunately, we are where we are. And um and I think we have to to go forward, but it is interesting that so many of unless us a are, new secession, unless a new secession is the answer. Well, what Trump I was going to say, Trump clings to power, and there's a Cal exit movement. You could imagine a kind of Western Oregon, Washington, and then kind of bridging across with Canada, and you could, you know, Northeast could 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 join in. 
Well, as you know, people are talking about that and that we actually sometimes game that out because it would be very interesting. As you probably know, California and New York make up the majority of the um, of the federal budget. Mm. So if they decided to pull out, what would then uh, the federal government held by Trump people do? Uh, to stop that if they didn't actually take federal property the way that the Confederates did and say, yeah, sure, take your federal property, but we're going to take our marbles and join Canada or, or make our own confederacies. It was very interesting after coronavirus broke and the federal government did nothing that there were consortia in both the East and the West that said, we're going to cooperate together. And, and there was a little bit of a ripple about that. And the federal government really never touched it. And at that point, they, the federal government did try and do more than it had done before because it's a real ideological problem for them after all these years of saying states rights, states rights, states rights. What if the states actually say, fine, we're going to be our own uh, our own group over here? It's a little hard to imagine um, how that would play out. You know, at what point then does the federal government say we're going to march in and take you over after arguing for two generations that we can't do that? Um, it, it's a very... I, I think problem. ideological inconsistency is something that people on the right can can live with quite happily, but... <laughs> That's fair, but it is it is interesting as you're you know as you're looking at, and of course people uh, the the uh, I think Stacey Abrams put it puts it best when she says you should stop thinking about uh, red states. What you should think about is voter suppression states, and I think that's fair. So the answer to maybe New York and California should go and Massachusetts should go their own way is hey wait a minute we're Americans down here too and don't abandon us. Heather. This is, I mean, we could go in so many different directions here, but I think we must, we, we, we should end there. It's a good point on which to end. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure. And, you know, someday we should do this where we just talk about documents from like the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s. And you and me and our three listeners would have a fabulous time. <laughs> we would. I look forward to that. Heather Cox Richardson, far from the only one to see echoes in today's politics of the battles of the Civil War. I'm Adam Smith, and you've been listening to the Last Best Hope podcast from Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute. If you've enjoyed this episode, please download the other episodes, subscribe and like us on iTunes to help other listeners find us. Goodbye. <laughs>